When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know what I want. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm Rose Sampson Folk, and today another draft-focused podcast because that's kind of what we've been doing. We are in the limbo, the flux between the draft and summer league, for the Raptors at least. Scotty Barnes, Delano Banton, and David Johnson await, among other players, guys who are trying to get into the league. But we're talking about the youngins today and somebody who specializes in the draft, specializes in basketball philosophy. I had to get him on this podcast before – he, like many other people on Twitter who have great conversations and great insights, gets hired to an NBA team, obviously. So we're getting him in early. Henry Ward, you can find him on Twitter at Henry W. Ward. There's some middle name minutia there that we won't get into. But Henry, I appreciate your insights very much so. And I'm excited to hear them. How are you doing, man? I'm good, Samson. Thank you for having me on. I've been a... Uh... An enjoyer of your content, whether it be this or bouncing around for a little bit, and it's exciting to, uh, to have a nice little basketball basketball philosophical chat with a uh, very Raptors heavy focus, considering they're now my uh, they've stolen my allegiance away from my hometown Los Angeles Clippers. So I'm excited. This is this, is, this feels like a, a birth of some kind. Let's let's follow that that thought then. Let's follow that thread. So the Raptors are now one of, if not the biggest team in your life. What is the main reason for that? What is the impetus? Sure. Um, so I'll, I'll save. Uh, I'm sure we'll get into a much grander discussion on the specifics of this later. But basically, I've been uh, anyone who's enjoyed any of my tweets on on Twitter or any article I've written have probably enjoyed it for um, a certain level of, of insight into this philosophy I have of where basketball is going. Um, and like I said, we'll describe some of that later, I imagine. But basically, the Raptors have, in, in multiple forms, in multiple mediums over the last two weeks, fully made it aware that they see things in a very similar way that I do. Um, first, with the decision to take Scotty Barnes fourth, uh, soon followed by the drafting of Delano Band and David Johnson uh, with their second round picks, and then sort of culminating in a quote from Bobby Webster, I believe the day after the draft, uh, that basically was an excellent two sentence summary of like everything I've sort of espoused for the last two years on Twitter. Um, which is all very exciting, especially because there's, there's obviously many other reasons to be uh, excited about the Raptors and, you know, their history of development and uh, recent success. And also it's kind of cool to root for, for an international team. Um, great branding. There's a lot to get behind and I'm just excited to be here for the ride. So partial is that there's, you know, the Venn diagram of your philosophy in the Raptors appears to be a circle. There's also some cachet in cheering for a boutique international team. 
because you're a fancy Renaissance man. That's that's what I'm getting from it. But okay, let's do Scotty Barnes because I had PD Webb on the podcast to talk about Scotty Barnes. And while he likes Scotty Barnes a lot, he and I probably share more skepticism for some aspects of his game and the overall team building from what we can tell with the Raptors. You, on the other hand, you represent the other side of the spectrum where you're smashing the like button like, hell yes, please more. So Scotty Barnes, uh, let's do the cliff notes of what you think of him first, and then we'll start to dig in a little deeper. Yeah, so I listened to your the podcast with PD um, over the last couple of days, and I it's funny PD and I have a lot of great discussions. I mean, I'm sure many people have discussions with PD would find them great, um, but we uh, we often find ourselves in a place where we kind of like to make fun of each other for our our most stringent opinions, um, but ultimately understanding that at the end, like the core of those opinions is often pretty similar. Um, and what I mean by that is listening to uh, your guys' podcast, it's like, there's not really anything PD said about Scotty Barnes that I disagree with. Um, it's just that at the end of the day, the player that PD described is much more attractive to me than it is to PD uh, from a team building perspective. Um, so I guess the, the abbreviated cliff notes, because I'm sure listeners have, have, or if you haven't, you have to listen to that episode. Um, but PD did a pretty good job outlining them. Essentially, you have a 6'9", wide-bodied, um, you know, functional, functionally athletic in some ways, functionally very unathletic in other ways, incredibly smart, incredibly predictive, proactive, high-field player on both ends, who is this kind of, you know, some people might find it weird and, and dissatisfying. I find it incredibly fun. Amorphous blob of kind of positionless player who is – like I said, this kind of giant guy who's not super athletic. He's sort of wing size, but he's kind of more glued to the ground in a way you predict a four would be. Um, not the most, not the best handler, but excels in skills that you would think come after some of more ball handling centric action, if that makes sense. Like an unbelievable passer, um, both on the perimeter and also in short roll opportunities. Uh, has that kind of not, I mean, it is proactive, but it's a different level of passing to where it's not the sort of passing where you're drawing defenders and finding the open guy consistently. Um, it's a lot of, you know, I'm going to stand in this one area and other players are going to move around and I'm going to decide which player I want to get open with my eyes and then I'm going to throw it to that player. Um, a lot of chess being played, which is super fun to watch and it's kind of one of my favorite traits to find in a player. But yeah, I think the skeptics would say, you know, there's concern about position, there's concern about athleticism, there's concern about shooting. And I think, you know, more, even more kind of diabolical skeptics would wonder how this, the sort of standout skills make themselves felt because of those deficiencies. You know, oh, if he's not shooting, how is he scoring? If he's not scoring, how is he creating these passing opportunities, et cetera? As a believer, I would say a lot of that kind of standout skill makes itself felt, A, because those concerns aren't maybe as important as they feel sometimes, um, which I'm sure we'll get into with the philosophy stuff. And also just because he's so good at them and basketball is such a dynamic game that it's not really like the assumption that you can take, if you can just allow a guy to score and he can't score uh, and just take away passing is kind of true. And it's, it's functional, especially in sort of pick and roll stuff, but the way Scotty operates with his quick decision-making and manipulation and just general, 
incredibly high feel, he'll find ways. And he, he has at every level so far. And it's been through, like I said, perimeter playmaking, operating as kind of like this, this big ball handler, even as like a point guard sometimes running in transition. There will be ways that he is effective despite some concerns. So I, I would say that is my, my addendum to PD's previous clip notes. Okay, so let's kind of hammer into things, and this may be a little bit unfair, but what you might expect him to succeed at, because you said there will be some avenues to success, and this, these don't have to be extremely bold claims, but in the NBA context, at the NBA level, what are you expecting to see Scotty Barnes do at a decent level in his first year? Because rookies are typically not very good from the jump. Yeah, I would say he's definitely going to be a plus passer, especially in positionally. You're going to see, there are going to be moments, uh, he's going to have, you know, kind of league pass highlight moments where he is, throws kind of no-look darts into the dunker spot or overhead whips to the opposite corner on a short roll where it's like, wow, that guy, that guy is, that's a passer. That guy can play like a little, you know, in a way that maybe, we're not seeing out of good pick and roll ball handlers that aren't elite that throw nice passes. Like it's not even going to be a Darius Garland type thing. It's going to, I think, be more jarring in the way that like a Luca or a LeBron or a Jokic type passer is. And that was obviously hefty company to put him in, but just saying purely from the stylistic standpoint of like, whoa, that pass was not something I could have perceived until he threw it, even as just a passive observer. Defensive versatility is going to be a, a huge plus and just, and this is actually an interesting point because I think it's going to depend your opinion of Scotty and his rookie year is going to depend a lot on how much you value like individual skill versus what individual skill does for a team context. Um, like you're not going to see Scotty sort of switching one through five, picking up point guards full court like he did in college, all that kind of like more eye grabbing stuff that makes him exciting as a kind of multi positional defender. But it will be in sort of the subtext a very exciting thing to see him cover responsibilities for guys that are out of place, you know, communicate through actions that otherwise would be basically exploited into easy buckets, you know, scram guys out of switches, all the kind of little things that is like, you know, that, that could have been a killed defensive possession. And because Scotty was on the court, it wasn't, there'll be moments like that. So I would say the two biggest things in his rookie year will be those, both the passing and then the, kind of general mistake kind of janitor aspect of his defense those are the two things i would imagine are most exciting this for raptors fans this should probably be this should remind them of a player who's already on the roster a problem solver defensively a problem arises after an advantage is created and they solve that problem with their ability to cover the court and help their teammates out OG Ananobi, Pascal Siakam are both capable of doing that. What do you make of the three-pronged defensive attack, let's say, of those three guys, plus Fred Van Vliet at the point of attack or tracking, let's say, a particularly potent off-guard or off-ball guard, off-ball, if that's what they're doing? Like that, that nucleus of those four guys, do you have any particular expectations for what that defense might look like? Yeah, I mean, that is, and again, I keep alluding to this later discussion of philosophy, but that is going to be, um, that's going to be the crux of their identity in my, in my estimation, and as it should be. Um, basically, the defensively on that, with that group, what you're banking on a lot of is there's going to be sort of uh, alternatives that have not previously sort of been 
either considered or measured in a way just because there's so much, even though there's obviously grand difference across schemes in the NBA defensively, it's, it's more on the kind of minutia level. It's sort of like, how are we going to, you know, where are we going to force this drive? Where is the help coming from? Those sort of things. Um, and the Raptors with that kind of lineup will sort of, I, I hope, uh, demonstrate an alternative, which is, you know, currently rim protection in the NBA is all very much, how are we going to alter a shot at the rim? How is, if, if this rim attempt is going to occur, um, or there's going to be two feet in the paint around the restricted area, how are we going to affect that, that attempt and, and lower over the course of a season, lower those percentages for other teams? This kind of new lineup that the Raptors are obviously deploying, or, or would be theoretically deploying, is kind of hinges on not letting people get to those points as often. Like it's going to be rim deterrence, not through, oh, there's a guy sitting in front of me while I thought I was going to shoot a layup and I'm not going to shoot it now, but rim deterrence in, well, this guy's just not going to get two feet in the paint to shoot a layup. That is where the value of that sort of lineup stands to me is keeping players out of opportune positions to start with, knowing that obviously to do that, there is a sacrifice in a sense that when they do get those rim attempts, that they will be easier. You don't have a Rudy Gobert, Quinn Capella to sort of kind of funnel everything to and hope for the best in terms of making life difficult for, for finishers. But the, the plan I imagine would be, and I would hope would be to through having, you know, four or five super athletic long guys play more versatile coverages, not in the sense of, Oh, we're, we're trapping every screen. We're switching every screen. We're soft switching. But in a sense that you're not going to have any one guy get torched then. And, and also in the sense that those, whatever ones at the point of attack, you're going to have two or three off the ball who are incredibly potent in their rotations and their ground coverage and ability to sort of cover the mistakes in that way. Uh, and through that, you're going to have a result that hopefully kind of uh, with a over you know, a bird's eye view looks somewhat similar in the sense that the shot charts are similar to what you'd hope for out of a good defense. Um, the percentages remain the same in terms of you're forcing a lot of kind of, you know, you're not letting a lot of open corner threes. You're not kind of allowing a ton of rim attempts. You're hoping for more things in the intermediate and above the break. That's still very possible with this kind of defense. It's going to be a much different avenue to arrive there, however. Okay, let's do offense. When I think of how people operate offensively, this is something I wrote about for Minute Basketball, was that Kyle Lowry is a player who harnesses chaos on the court. And, for example, Chris Paul and LeBron James are guys who I would say limit chaos. And the Raptors operated in the ethos of Kyle Lowry's whole sphere. It's just, what is Kyle Lowry doing? Let's play Kyle Lowry basketball for a long time now. That time has passed. He signed with the Heat in a sign-in trade, which I think still isn't done on the Raptors' end. They're still working out the details of it. I haven't seen anything reported. If that happens during this podcast or before it's out, uh, my apologies. But Fred Van Vliet is a guy who is not somebody who leaves such an imprint on the game as Kyle Lowry, Chris Paul, or LeBron James would. But I do see him as a player who more so limits chaos offensively. He has very rudimentary reads. He creates the same advantage over and over. Whereas most recently, the Raptors had been a, real, a read and react team behind Kyle Lowry, where his reads, his interpretations of all the different ways the defense defended, that led to unique advantages that 
in a lot of times, Pascal Siakam, when he wasn't the primary creator, would take advantage of OG Ananobi, a lot of pick and pops and a lot of short rolls into space for Serge Ibaka, Marcus All, Valanciunas, stuff like that. Scotty Barnes appears to be entering a context where the half-court offense will be extremely limited in, let's say, chaos. They appear to be bereft of advantage creation, which if you listen to the last podcast, PD gave, I think, the perfect breakdown on. And in transition and defensively, they will have a ton of chaos. But more so in the half court, what do you think of the Raptors as a context to kind of harbor his abilities? Yeah, that chaos is necessary because, of course, chaos is where openings are created. That's, I think, what advantage creation hinges on. Um, It's just going to have to be created through a much more uh, obscure creative lens. Like, it's not going to happen through, you know, the the, the, uh, probably the most frustrating thing for me watching um, basketball at a lot of levels at this point um, is how much advantage creation the responsibility is always just placed on players it's can the player create an advantage oh is this player valuable because they can or cannot create an advantage um so and so is such a valuable player for in the draft or as a recruit or as a free agent because they create advantages and that's all true because advantages are ultimately what you operate out of to create quality looks and offense it's it's the it's the chaos that you alluded to that comes out of those advantages um, but the onus is never placed on the coaching staff and on, on the architects of play design. And, you know, we, we, we know that they're obviously set to run in the NBA, um, maybe less so than there were 20 years ago. Um, but it's not like everything is, is a sort of improvisation. Um, and so there's no real teaching of kind of, I mean, that's not true. It's very unfair to say there's no real teaching of playing with principles, but there's very, much more so a kind of impetus on the player to create advantages for their team. And they will do so with the, the relative aid of sets, whether it be spread pick and rolls or Spain pick and rolls or, you know, Miami, act, Miami actions, Knicks actions, whatever it is. Um, those are all kind of quick hitting actions and, and sets that we know and, and are honestly fun to watch. And as enthusiasts, we, we geek out on. Um, However, there's not a lot of teaching of, you know, like logically passing principles of how to create advantages. And what I mean by that is there's very, I mean, and again, this has never been tested. So it has, I've like, I've seen it happen at the college level and um, in high school and even at youth levels um, in terms of how you can scheme these things. Uh, but there are some like, relatively simple principles that if taught and like executed pretty often would be pretty hard to guard um sort of like guided relocations into um kind of pretty simple passing reads uh that currently aren't being used the one i, I kind of talk about the most and think about is like the fill behind pass if someone drives right and the person that's to the left of them relocates to behind them uh that pass is almost always open because that sink is pretty hard to get to from the wherever that sink is the top of the key um, or the wing or wherever the drive came from. And just little things like that. There are ways, to, I, my grander point, the issue is, is less important. My grander point is that there are ways to scheme advantage and that will be critical for the Raptors um, is how they actually scheme those advantages and not uh, rely on these sort of <laughs> agents of chaos that have become kind of the pinnacle of basketball in the last three years 
Um, I mean, I guess they always have been, but more so in the last three years, you get that, that threshold feels like it's now been lowered to where like, you know, Colin Sexton or DeMar DeRozan are so much more valuable than, than replacing player Y because they create advantages. Um, but the, yeah, I guess the general idea is that the, the skills of others in sort of like with Scotty or OG or, or Pascal will only be extracted if those advantages are schemed because no one's going to be creating them from a static situation. And once they are schemed, uh, then those skills that they, they do excel in really begin to shine. Like those are all very smart players who uh, are quality passers. Obviously, Scotty, that's his main selling point. Um, you know, shooting coming around for some of them uh, is there for others. Uh, general ability to attack space when it's there is, is I think, a, a major strength of that team. Um, so it will just – it's going to be an odd test because it could look really, really bad, admittedly, if this scheming isn't kind of uh, – you know, it, maybe it's being attempted and not working. Maybe it's not being attempted in the right way. There's a potential for it to really be a disaster. Um, but if it works, this could be kind of like a major – inflection point for the NBA realizing that you can succeed offensively without these traditional sort of high leverage scores um, that have kind of been understood over the past six years to be necessary in a successful offense. Um, so it's going to be fun. I mean, this is again, why I'm going to be tracking the Raptors so, so tightly is because this is sort of a, uh, the first real data point I have of an NBA team trying something like this um, after kind of being my, my MO for the past 16 months. Okay, so very interesting point. People who cover the Raptors, and I cover every Raptors game. You can, a lot of people listen to the podcast. You know, I do the reaction podcast. I break down the game like, oh, here's what I thought happened. Here's who was good. Here's a set that I thought was working, and they used it a few times and all that kind of stuff. It was less fun this past year because the Raptors were not very good, and they struggled immensely. But something that was really easy to pick up on was that the Raptors are trying, even with Kyle Lowry, even with, you know, typical guards and not quite leaning as far into this. Every guy profiles as OG and Pascal per size thing. They don't run as many sets. They don't give as much schematic help for advantage creation as a lot of other teams. That's something the Raptors will probably have to try and help. Uh, Chris Finch did a decent job implementing some horn sets that the Raptors liked using this past year, but he obviously left to Minnesota midseason, which was rare, but it was a thing that happened. So all this to say, we're going to talk about the Miami Heat at the back end of this podcast, maybe of the past two years, as far as scheming advantages in a different leading scorer for each round of the playoffs as they went to the finals, uh, hunting space and extrapolating advantage from scheme, all that kind of stuff. But we're not going to get to talk about it now. I just like what you said as far as how it might help or hinder Scotty. Uh, breaking news, by the way, Masai Ujiri uh, agreed to a significant new deal to become vice chairman and president of the Toronto Raptors. So wow, no news on how much money or whatever, but what Adrian Wojnarowski reporting that Masai is not, in fact, leaving. So, you know, the... Yeah, the people who thought he might be leaving to go work with Barack Obama on some sort of thing, uh, you know, well-reasoned. Uh, reasonable minds can disagree on that, but uh, he, he's back with the Raptors. For how long? I'm not sure. 
I don't want to do a podcast fully on just like Masai Ujiri signed a deal. So uh, uh, Masai, thanks for building a, a winning team and all that kind of stuff. But okay, we'll keep moving on. And we're going to talk about David Johnson. Now, you've said elsewhere that David Johnson was somewhat of a lottery talent in your eyes. And here he is in the middle of the second round, ripe for the picking of the Raptors. And I saw your reaction live, uh, like on the TL and in the group chat. Very excited. Like, okay, if Toronto was my team before, it is beyond a doubt. So David Johnson, what's the appeal right off the jump for you to view him as a lottery talent? Uh, the appeal is a 6'5", plus wingspan, very, very good passer who uh, will shoot long-term and knows how to play and is, and is kind of an exponentially good uh, defensive processor. Uh, there's, there's moments where uh, I did, I did a, uh, a stream with our friend PD um, about David Johnson right before the draft, and a lot of this is probably more aptly covered there, but the, uh, the spark notes are that there is a lot of hard-to-teach, really ceiling-raising skills there um, from the way he – kind of his style of passing, which is very much not – in the reactive mold, but more so in the, uh, I kind of know who's going to be open in any given moment. So I'm either going to give you the ball to give it to that open guy, or you're going to give the ball to me and I'm going to get it to the open guy. Um, having five players that are like that is really hard to guard. <laughs> I, it's just, it becomes, the more you, the more players you have on the court that think that way and can process things that fast, um, it becomes a really tough cover because there's nothing, there's nowhere to hide in the sense that there's just, there is at any point. Cause I mean, the way defense operates in the NBA and naturally so is because, you know, everyone's getting more talented, more space, more space, more space. Uh, it hinges a lot on people covering responsibilities, but when you have players on offense, you can subsequently understand what those responsibilities are. There's someone always open on the NBA court, I guess is what I'm saying. And if you have players who can deliver it to those open players, more advantages are created because, of course, if someone's open, then they get the ball. There's then a scramble to deter their original shot or their original drive or whatever it may be. And from there, if that same player is the same sort of processor that someone like David Johnson is, uh, you're in this endless kind of – once that first advantage is created, there's this domino effect of, of keeping an advantage, which is very valuable. Um, so apart from the passing – it does hinge a lot on shooting developments. He was not, he was a good shooter in high school in AAU, um, struggled a bit his freshman year at Louisville, both. It seemed like a, I don't think percentages were great, but also didn't shoot very much. Um, so a little bit of like a regression in terms of confidence and, and role there. Um, and in this past year, again, didn't shoot a ton, but shot more and also shot near 40% from three. Um, mechanics are good. I wouldn't believe in them being a good, catch and shoot guy never going to be like a real movement or off the variable guy he's not that level of shooter but will space the floor by you know and punish over helping off of him uh and defensively like i said he is he's pretty built he's strong he can stick with guys he's good at beating people to spots um a lot of his sort of style of defense is not as much kind of the twitchy mirroring but like the large big steps to cover ground and beat guys to angles and deter drives that way. 
Um, and like I said, off the ball, he has moments where he looks kind of lost in the sense that he will have his back turned at a drive that comes right at him. Um, but there are also moments in which he will process seemingly nine defensive reads in the span of five seconds perfectly well, which leads me to believe that those bad moments are more a result of him kind of overthinking things, um, which is a great problem to have on defense. If you're, if you're over-processing things on a, on a college court where there's feels like 10 screens being set at any one time, you're going to be just fine in the NBA. Um, so that is, that's the elevator pitch, I suppose. I'm, I'm a, uh, my, my lottery sort of push was that you get five guys that, that think like David Johnson, have the ancillary skills as, as well as the size. Uh, you're going to have a really nice little team product. I understand he maybe doesn't have the ceiling of a typical lottery guy. He's not the, he's never going to be an on-ball creator. He's never going to be, running pick and I mean, he can, he can run pick and rolls in a pinch, but he's never going to be like a guy you're feeding through pick and rolls. Um, he's never going to be like a lethal shooter or never going to be like a really excellent star in one situation, except for the passing. And in that way, it kind of feels like, you know, you're my, my pitch would be you're, you've acquired a really nice role player, um, a really, really nice role player who will definitely, you know, contribute well, to a championship level team at his peak. Uh, understand that he's not going to be the second or third best player on one, but he will be on one and be an important part of one. Okay. So the track record, you, know, you brought up, you know, there's not going to be a ton of pick and roll or he might not project as a guy who's just going to, you're going to spam it to, you know, even from a modicum to a great amount of success. But under Nick Nurse, the Raptors have been extremely, I don't know what the reluctant to give anybody that isn't f- between five foot ten and six foot one a pick and roll possession. Pascal Siakam has been returning huge points per possession in his pick and roll possessions for two years now. They still don't run it. OG Ananobi, I hope he gets a lot of them this year just to see. I know you don't like the term threshold really, but just to see, you know, how far it goes. What is he willing to kind of where, where does his brain stop with what he allows for himself on the court? Like, what, what is he going to take advantage of? How often can he do it in a game? Everybody has that. And the Raptors, typically, for a guy of David Johnson's skill set and his physical profile, they're going to feed him a heavy dose of, well, if he's getting a heavy dose of anything, it's going to be flares, pin downs, dribble handoffs, and attacking closeouts. In those contexts, how do you view him as an offensive decision maker and finisher? Decision making is is really good. Like I think if you get him in an advantage situation, he will nine times out of ten make the right decision. Uh, the tough part is he kind of has a little bit of, uh, you know, perfect being the enemy of good when in those advantages. Uh, and again, this is this could be very much college context, um, just because college is so rigid and coaches like to have a ton of kind of control on what their guys are doing. Um, but there's a lot of plays that in this past year where he will, he'll get an edge, um, but he won't, he's not, I mean, he's not overly quick. So that's part of it too, but he won't sort of exploit past the point of, uh, he won't press that advantage into the kind of making it a clear lane for himself. He'll most often turn his back into a post up or, or retreat back out or sell for a little turnaround of some sort, um, which might kind of, bite a team like the Raptors in the butt because there's so much hinging on like that main maintenance of advantage that once you have a pause, 
it's going to kind of be a killer in a possession sort of to possession basis. Um, but I do think that there is value in kind of his pace. I mean, he was a point guard. Like, he was a point guard at freshman year. And then the Louisville added this guy, Carly Jones, who kind of took over the on-ball responsibilities this past year. But David Johnson at his core was a point guard. Um, so he's, there's still all those little kind of minutia with the pace he has uh, in advantage situations if he does kind of, you know, if the advantage is good enough for him, uh, he does show good pace. Um, and like I said, he'll be a good catch-and-shoot guy. I do worry a little bit about, you know, if you're, if you're like running David Johnson off players, I don't think he sees himself as a level of shooter that's going to be like, you know, catch and release on kind of like in, in flow with footwork type guy. It's going to be more, especially at the beginning, more of a, uh, you know, Oh, I, I have the ball now and Oh, I, I should shoot it and I'll shoot it. rather than like, I'm going to get this ball and shoot it. Um, which is a pretty big difference in the NBA, especially if you're directly involved in the action. Um, so I think there's, there could be some, some, some concerns, some ugly moments, perhaps with ball stoppages. Um, but those ball stopping moments are not the product of my sort of pet peeve, which is ball stopping moments that happen from like, oh, I can take this guy or, you know, some, some sort of like personal acknowledgement of the situation being better. If you have the ball, then the ball keeps moving. Uh, the ball stopping moments for DJ are going to be like, I thought through these nine things and none of them are that good. And so I didn't get to the 10th thing before I can make a decision. Um, which is a much more from a process standpoint, much, much better and much healthier from a long-term perspective. Do you think he's a candidate for a guy who might struggle immensely as a playmaker initially, but might have a boom later on then if he starts to chunk like the reads at the NBA level? Mm -hmm. I think that is fair. There is going to be a lot of it too, depends on what the Raptors see him as. Cause there's two very, understandable schools of thought that you could view David Johnson in. And that is one is like the big point guard who can't really shoot, but is a very good passer. And one is the off ball wing who will be able to shoot a little bit on catch and shoot situations. And is better just advantage or better kind of attacking advantages made for him in terms of like, uh, like I said, more of that like advantage maintenance versus advantage creation. Um, and my gut tells me the Raptors see him more in that second mold, depending, you know, kind of judging off of everyone else they took. But it's also possible, I mean, kind of what PD alluded to on the last podcast too, is like maybe the Raptors view isn't that they're going to like take these three kind of funky high IQ wings. Instead, they might be taking two of those guys and their third being David Johnson is like more of the point guard bet that PD alluded to that they might need. In which case, I'd be a little bit more concerned. Um, but the hope would be that he is, like, entered on day one, sat down with whatever coaches are kind of responsible for his development, whether it be 905 or Toronto people, um, and kind of said, like, look, here are the things you do well, and we'd love you to do them for us. And if those things are running pick and rolls, uh, you know, kind of – operating from a standstill and having him make decisions from a more reactive standpoint, things might get ugly. If the, if the vision is uh, you're going to be our two guard are, are, you know, playing the three in a pinch um, just to have some extra playmaking there positionally. And we're not worried about it because you have the length to guard wings um, that are kind of smaller in stature. I don't think he's going to be able to guard like, you know, actual big wings, but uh, two guards shouldn't be a problem for him. 
then then you should be thrilled. And I think he's gonna he's gonna look pretty good. And there's gonna be moments in the 905, I imagine, where if he is in that second role, he's gonna look too good for the G League. Um, if he if he's put in the point guard situation, he's gonna look just just at home in the G League, I think. Um, but if he's like that connector wing and is playing, you know, I don't know what the plans are for Malachi Flynn this year. Um, if he's playing with Malachi as like the two guard, that could look really really good, um, especially at the G League level. So there's there's ways it could go. I'm I'm. You know, my, my entire MO for the last, like, two weeks has been just to give the Raptors the benefit of the doubt. Uh, so I'm just going to keep doing that and thinking that they're going to view him as a wing and that and things are going to materialize maybe quicker than the Raptors even thought, knowing that they took him with whatever it was, the 47th pick. I expect Malachi to be at the NBA level because I think he's, he's turning 24 this year. He's good. He had a really tough start to, the, to his NBA season was NBA career, I should say, because it's tough to ask guys who are reliant on wiggle to create advantages to start wiggling against NBA defenses early because you can look really bad if you try and wiggle on NBA defenders and it's not there. So there's like a confidence thing that those young guards have to get. And once he got it and he was like, okay, I can boogie here too, then he started operating in a better capacity. So I expect him to be at the, uh, at the NBA level. But Banton... You know, maybe they get super funky and Johnson, maybe they invert it. You know, like maybe it's Johnson at the one, Banton at the two through four, or whatever the hell it is, or vice versa, except Johnson doesn't scale up defensively as much. Let's do Banton then. I, you've sold me on Johnson. I'm excited beyond all hell to watch him at Summer League. Uh, he came back with a video where he said, we the North, like the Jalen Harris meme of last season. And so Banton the first Canadian ever drafted by the Raptors. What are your thoughts on him? And obviously he seems to fit the mold of Henry's gorgeous basketball brain team. Yes, he certainly does on paper. He's a six, nine kind of plus movement guy, just funk fest who can pass. Um, fest. I like a lot, <laughs> but there, it might be too much of a funk fest. I mean, I was, you know, I wasn't that high on, on Ben just because there's so much, maybe it's like an aesthetic thing for me. You know, I struggle to like, kind of, uh, during the actual draft process, I don't, I'm not great at like analyzing the process while I'm in it. So it's easier when you look back. Um, and maybe I, I owe Banton some, some rewatching, uh, but there's just so much weird stuff happening that, it feels like that's a classic Toronto pick in the sense that, like, you know, we know what we've got in the armory in terms of player development stuff, um, even though Phil Handy is gone. But uh, they clearly believe in that system still. Um, and maybe it's like, uh, you know, we've got these two second-round picks. Why not throw one at this weirdo who might, if he's good, be <laughs> extremely useful in odd sort of unforeseen context? Um, and if he's not, so be it. Uh, I lean more in the camps that I don't really know, like, what he's doing. It's, it's hard for a guy like Benton in a way that it isn't for Johnson because Benton is not the – just by nature of being 6'9", he's just – he struggles with things that taller people struggle with in a way that Johnson doesn't. Um, like, PD talked about this on the, on the podcast as well, but, like, it's tough for 6'9 guys to keep a tight handle. Even if it's like tight handle for a six nine guy, it's just harder because there's more physical space between the ball and your hands with every move, um, and because you can't 
and this is like a classic, I, I, I empathize with Delano Bain because this is something that, that sucks for me in pickup a lot of times. I'm often one of the tallest people there and maybe sometimes tasked with being a ball handler and you can't, you know, I'm not fast. I don't have a lot of shift. My MO is very much like the spin dribble until you get an advantage, get your ass on the guy. Uh, when you're tall, that's hard to do because you're never going to be the lower guy. You're never going to have the center of gravity that's more um, kind of put in place than your defender. Uh, and Ben seems to struggle with those things. And I, I worry that there's just a lot of that, the things that make him special um, or interesting don't come to fruition for the kind of limiting factors. And it's interesting to kind of compare him to a guy like Scotty because Scotty is – kind of in that same mold of like, you know, Scotty is like hyper banton in some ways, I guess. Um, but that you get diminishing returns kind of the more levels you, you downgrade off of the actual Scotty um, in terms of like actual effectiveness, because those skill thresholds do matter. I think Scotty surpasses them, but once you don't surpass them, then it kind of sucks. Uh, so, and that's not to say Ben sucks. I think Ben is a good player and very interesting. It's just that it's his, his battle is going to be tough to, to make him a, a useful player in a context that's not obviously going to be, you know, designed for him as a 46 pick. Um, he's going to have to find ways that, you know, maybe he's, because in Nebraska, he was essentially like this, their point guard. Like he would run pick and rolls. He would do uh, a lot of just like the classic, kind of offensive point guard stuff, um, bring the ball up, you know, kind of like touch the ball six times a possession. Um, and that's not his role at the next level, I don't think. I don't think he's going to have to hold it. So it will require an adaptation that is possible given his feel. But um, it's just, you know, it's hard to picture what's not there. So it's it's curious. I wonder, he's someone who I imagine will spend a ton of time with the 905. Um, mm-hmm. like in, I would imagine the full year. Uh, so they'll be curious to see kind of how he fits in with those guys. But um, if he commits to like being this high feel sort of like three, who's kind of this, you know, maybe your point guard's more of a um, out there more for their defensive capabilities. I don't, I don't have the 905 roster in front of me, so I don't really know what he's going to be lined up with, but um, he could be like a kind of unique connector piece as like a point guard mind in a six, nine body. Who's still playing the three or four. Um, it's just going to be a much more, uh, specific context for him to succeed as it would for maybe DJ or Sky, just because the skill level difference. And for DJ, it's the difference in sort of ease in perceiving how he scales. I think, yeah, that's a great point. He seems like the swing. He seems like 905 for a year, maybe two, honestly, because it seems like with Banton, what you're betting on is that he's a guy who has a unique skill set for his position, who figured out a strange and unique way to operate at the college level and strange and unique on the basketball court funk fest as uh, coined by Henry Ward is good. Typically, especially if you're a good player. So maybe they're saying create another funk fest. It might not be the way you succeeded in college, but you have a unique body. You have a unique set of skills, John wick, figure it out, make it happen. So I'm excited to see it. It's uh it's a great point you make, though, that like, you know, just because you succeed at something at college, especially for these types of players, like with his body, does not mean it's going to happen. You bring up the dribbling. I like that, too. In, in pickup, 
is your worst nightmare a guy like me who's like roughly six foot and like 180 sticking the knee under so you takes away your strength on the back down but they can recover on the spin when you spin off the knee like what's what's your worst nightmare your the defensive matchup you hate if i'm tasked with the ball handling responsibilities then my worst nightmare is like the twitchy guy who's like five eleven or shorter uh who really takes a lot of pride in not letting me get the ball off the court that's just miserable to play against um he's in not final. yeah exactly like i would i guess i would compare myself to like tyrese halberd like i'm a uh a smart player good passer good shooter but never really going to create an advantage that's not created for me um not you know we've all seen the viral videos at this point that have, have circulated twitter once or twice of <laughs> me getting burned off the bounce by mike de la rosa um certainly upright with tight hips and tight hamstrings to just limit me physically and it's not a great handle but uh if you, if you put me with a point guard you can make a lot of things uh make a lot of things work but yeah the stronger more shifty shorter guys i i get a lot of trouble with i you honestly do sound like a pretty a pretty heinous nightmare of mine on the pickup court <laughs> mike has a tight dribble it, it's quite evident in that uh that video it's a nice little handle he's got there but uh yeah i think we can do uh basketball philosophy if you want to get into that with me yeah gladly this is what sets you apart from a lot of people who talk basketball the wings agenda uh something that I agree with the the main thing that you're presenting there is that a wing and correct me if I'm characterizing it or summer, summing it up in a the incorrect way but a wing can couple together the best aspects of a big and the best aspects of a guard like LeBron James and Kevin Durant coming over to defend the front of the rim is insane in a way that a guard who can pull up the same way that Kevin Durant just can't do except for like Drew Holiday and Kyle Lowry in transition for whatever reason and Danny Green I guess but it's just the it's the use the term amorphous blob by the way which you're the only other person I've ever heard use that but I want you to know <laughs> I use that and it's so good amorphous blob just plug it in anywhere yep. when you don't that, that's what it is amorphous that's blob is an amorphous blob of a word but okay exactly. yes wings and the guys who are like-sized to OG and Pascal to bring it back to Bobby Webster, the Raptors GM after the draft, but the wing agenda, the like-sized, mid-sized guys agenda, philosophy, I'd like the cliff notes, and then I'd like to dig in with you. Sure. Um, ooh, I always have to think about how I want to start this, because I want to keep it, I could talk, I mean, I could end up talking for an hour and not realizing about this stuff, and I'm just going in circles, so I have to, I have to plan this out a little bit, but I think the best, so I guess I can always start with the premise, which is that, um, you know, we've seen basically everyone's gotten smarter. Everyone gets smarter every year with ways to exploit rule changes and personnel shifts and whatever. Um, space is everything. Space makes everything easier on offense, no matter how good your team is. Like no matter how good anybody is at basketball, the more space you have to do stuff, the more easy, the easier it is to, make shots, to make passes, to dribble, to make decisions, to any facet of desirable offensive skill is easier to do in space just by nature of the human brain and what we, how we take in bandwidth and, um, you know, 
easy, easy to understand general processes. Um, so what does that make? What, if I want to win with that premise, what do I want to do? Well, on offense, I want to maximize that space. On defense, I want to limit that space. So I guess we can start with offense. How am I going to maximize that space? Um, I want five players who are all able to, uh, you know, maintain advantages, operate in space, and also off the ball, maintain that space, whether it be with shooting gravity or cutting sense, um, you know, just general basketball sense in terms of like setting off all screens or um, finding ways to kind of, uh, you know, co-opt the defense to our, to our willing so that we can make sure that the opposing defenders are never in a place where they can overhelp um, without punishment. And you punish overhelping by exploiting the open space causeway overhelping, whether that be with shooting or cutting. Um, and then with the ball, that is with, you know, high level decision-making um, and of course the ability to make those shots. So uh, and I don't even, you know, I could talk for hours and go in all the minutia of finishing and all that and ball handling, all that stuff, but those are kind of the main points. And then defensively, of course, limiting space requires, of course, a point of attack defenders who can, you know, to the best of their ability, hold the ball in front of them so that overhelping isn't required. Um, but understanding that, you know, help is generally always required. Um, having guys who, A, have the basketball sense to uh, win help when a scramble is forced, optimize that scramble to their will um, so that the, the scramble, I guess, is minimized in the sense that you're not running, you know, basically to the first guy you see and then you you're end up covering more ground than you have to. But, you know, covering the passes that are the easiest to make um, covering the shooters that will punish the uh, open space most, um, basically addressing the, the desires of the offense in the same order that they would kind of list their desires, if that makes sense. So you're, you're taking away the first option first, you're taking away the second option second, taking away the third option third, and so forth. Um, and then knowing that you have to help, a, a spectacular physical trait that I was also kind of, I think, gelled with feel is – uh, the ability to cover ground efficiently um, so that you can have somebody who is forced into a two-on-one situation on the weak side can feasibly guard two at one time, um, can feasibly muck up that action with, you know, with their length, with their speed, with their um, kind of, you know, technique and wits, whatever it may be, um, enact their, their will so that advantages are stymied, at least in a sense that it allows other defenders to get back into the play. Um, and so with all that being understood, uh, oh, and also I should mention on-ball pressure is, is a very nice way to limit space because on-ball pressure limits decision-making. And so if you have guys that can provide that pressure, um, that's great. And in kind of every, every one of these sort of points has like two sides on the coin. And so if you're going to have on-ball pressure, one thing you probably need is some added rim protection, um, one way to kind of provide all on ball rim protection or excuse me on ball pressure adequately is having players who can guard multiple, multiple positions because the way the NBA operates it's a lot of running guys off screens and whether that be with the ball or without it um, and screens just by nature of like what people are allowed to do in the NBA are hard to get around for anybody um, so having guys that can that can switch or having big defenders who can 
you know, when brought to the screen, if they're guarding the screener, can hedge hard and, and buy people time on the back end and make things hard for the ball handler. Those are things that are valuable as well. And then on that back end, if turners, if, if corners are turned, having players who can help protect the rim and not having it matter too much who it is and on that backside. So if it's, you know, if it's your two or your four, you're still getting some level of rim protection from the weak side. Um, and now that essay is over, what is a player that can do all those things most often? It is a most typically a 6'6 to 6'10 guy who can move well, who is, you know, not as physically limited size-wise as a guard, not as physically limited sort of speed and agility-wise as a big, um, and also offensively kind of has those ball skills, has probably been taught a little bit to handle the ball and, and have that feel as a passer um, to shoot a little bit. And so it's not that I am a wing truther in the sense of like wings for wing sake. It's just that most often the guys that I value most and their skill sets and what they're able to do come in the form of wing size players. Um, and I'm sure we'll kind of allude to once we get to like through the granular actual philosophy stuff, we can talk more, I'm sure, about like the actual application of the Raptors here because it seems like they're doing that. They're trying to get guys like OG, Scotty, Pascal, um, even like Boucher, who can move and be giant and have offensive weight, can carry offensive loads. Um, that's a great way to win, in my opinion. And they're clearly kind of going after that, which is again why I'm why I'm in a uh, a true Toronto guy now. It's interesting to think about the 2019-76ers because Joel Embiid, you have to kind of divorce him from that. And he helps a lot, obviously. Joel Embiid is a Defensive Player of the Year nominee. Year in, year out, he's extremely affecting on that end. But the Raptors in that series struggled immensely against the 76ers because of Embiid, yes, but also because of Tobias Harris, while not a super good defender, when he's on the weak side, passing angles are radically changed. Jimmy Butler, Ben Simmons, it's a large, and J.J. Redick even, who has short arms, but he's still 6'4". It's the type of space you have on offense, and that's one of your big things, is limiting space for the offense as the defense. There is a very, very visible blueprint to success for defenses that play big in the middle. Like taking away the nail with bigger guys and longer guys is an extremely effective thing. But here's my big question, right? Is everybody in the NBA wants wings. So where are you accessing the market inefficiency? Because everybody wants the wing like Jeff Green. Sorry, not Jeff Green. That's later. Everybody wants the wing that's like Kevin Durant or LeBron James or Jason Tatum. But are you accessing like, Jeff Green or Michael Kidd Gilchrist or Rondé Hollis Jefferson, where's the market inefficiency in this idea? Because I think that's where most new ideas are trying to operate is in a market inefficiency. I think the market inefficiency exists in the idea that, well, of course, I should also preface that like, if you got access to like a generational talent, regardless of archetype or anything, like I'm not eschewing Joel Embiid because he's too big and slow, right? I guess it's silly thing to do. Um, but I do think the market inefficiency lies in the idea that advantages, what we were talking about earlier, that advantages can be schemed and don't need to be created out of stagnation. And so that you are um, able to, if you're able to maintain a certain level of feel on the court, a certain level of kind of mismatching 
multi-positionality, uh, versatile skill sets in the sense that, you know, oh, one guy is an okay shooter, a terrific passer. Um, I'll just keep to one side of the ball for now because getting on both sides kind of complicates things. But it just turns into like a puzzle of if you've got certain level of skills here and certain level of skills there, um, you're able to create this kind of amalgam of like odd mismatch, but all pretty high floor ceiling raising players in their own way. Um, like I think of someone like David Johnson fitting with Scotty Barnes, you know, both obviously tremendous passers, both not great shooters, um, but optimistic reasons for both more so DJ than Scotty. Um, but even though there's like a feel of overlap there in the sense that the archetype positionally is kind of similar and that Scotty, I guess you could say is like a bigger, better version of DJ in some ways. Um, the skills that are at the crux of make them good are not um, PD actually does a great job talking about this in his Patrick Williams piece from last year is the idea of compound versus component skills, component skills being skills that uh sort of i want to botch the explanation but they are skills that exist in vacuums they they do they are skills that make a player better and they help a team impact purely through the individual perspective um you know as a ball handler and, and compound being the opposite of that compound skills being skills that when put together raise the acumen of skills for other players on the court so me being a better ball handler on the court doesn't make you a better ball handler um me being a better passer has it opens things up for other players in a way that you know a component skill like ball handling does not shooting is another one in that in that same sort of way you know you've never had too much shooting on the court you've never had too much passing on the court you never had too much you know um ground coverage defensively on the court um those kind of compound skills being the main focus you can scheme openings that when you have five players with you know, highly skilled in compound areas, uh, create this sort of sum greater than the whole situation where, uh, or whole greater than the sum, I should say, uh, where you don't need like this prolific advantage creator on the court to generate quality offense. And the hope would be that if you don't have that prolific advantage creator, because those often are the, just by nature of like development systems, the defensive sieves most of the time, um, you're not really giving anything up defensively either. So to the roundabout answer to your question is like the market efficiency is viewing a team of like Patrick Williams, Joe Ingles, um, you know, David Johnson, Scotty Barnes and, and OG and Obi at its peak. Uh, if everyone's in their primes there, that's like a team that I would, you know, if, if uh, coaching or if, you know, forced to invest in would like, I, I would see finishing much better than, kind of individual stat models might predict or kind of like more passive observers might predict you say oh where's the star where's the advantage creation where's this this and that they're more of a you know seven or eight seed six seed um i'd be like no that's like a you know that's a, that's a two or a three seed um and so that is where the market inefficiency is is the idea that you can put together a bunch of like connecting players and that you don't really need the the idea of connecting players in the sense that we understand it now in the mainstream, it seems like is that connecting players are great at kind of piecing together more flawed parts that excel in areas that are harder to find, whether it be like rim protection through like a true five center who struggles offensively and 
a, a two guard, a volume scoring two guard who's great at creating advantages, but struggles a lot defensively. Um, you know, the connector was supposed to mold those two pieces together. Well, if you put five quote unquote connectors out there, I think there might be, you know, again, we haven't seen it. My gut would tell me there's a, a real chance that that team would outperform expectations. Is there a team without a generational talent that has gotten close to your vision in any percentile type of way? Have you gotten 60% of the way there and been like, oh, I just need this guy on this team, something like that? Um, I would say the two best examples of like really reaching above the stars without having like a top 20 all-time player are last year's Jazz and uh, the Heat of two years ago. Those are kind of the most reaching examples that stand out in terms of uh, obviously very talented teams like the Heat had Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo and the Jazz had Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell. Um, and Mike Conley. Lot- Evan Gualberto would kill me if I didn't <laughs> say Mike Conley. <laughs> and Mike Conley. And Mike Conley. Um, but you see how, you know, there's not we, – we've kind of understood. Uh, and the Jazz, you know, maybe the Jazz aren't the best example because they lost in the second round. But um, – Feasibly, if the playoff series go their way, they're a one seed. I don't think it's unreasonable to expect them succeeding in a Western Conference final situation. Um, and so you have, obviously, the Heat making the finals. And those are two teams kind of missing that. And I guess it's still true to an extent. Um, we've kind of operated in the pretense that, like, every team that needs to be the best team in the league or be a top three team in the league has to have one of the top three, five players or some mix of the top ten players. Um, those are two teams that didn't have that and, and came pretty darn close to kind of winning a championship. And I guess the Jazz obviously didn't in the sense that they didn't make it that far in the playoffs, but won a ton of games um, using that stratosphere. So those are kind of my examples. Also because stylistically they make sense in the sense that they were sort of a team of connectors, very smart players. Um, granted, they each did have obviously some level of advantage creator with Mitchell and Butler. Um, but that obviously those guys aren't doing the same lines as KD or Giannis or LeBron or Steph. Um, but they, they did maximize the most out of their, you know, say what you want. I'm a huge Duncan Robinson fan. I think we can all probably agree that Duncan Robinson is a highly flawed player who was maximized to his utmost, you know, peak in that Pete finals run, as was Tyler Hero, as was Jay Crowder, as was – there's a, just a, a – the list goes on for the, the Jazz. It's Ingles and Bogdanovich and Royce O'Neal and George Niang. And um, maximizing those players, those connecting players, goes a long way in what you're ultimately able to create from a winning standpoint. And stylistically, a lot of that is reflected in the high-level ball movement, very quick decision-making, um, high-level off-ball movement in terms of players moving around. So – those I would say are the kind of the two best examples I have for the most recent kind of couple of years. How different do you think playoff basketball is from regular season basketball? Great question. Cause this is a very funny, it's a, it's a pet peeve of mine that comes up in discussion, mm-hmm. uh, which is, Oh, Oh, you know, we'll, we'll win in the regular season. Um, I think, I don't know. I don't want to put words in people's mouths, but it feels like, Whenever there's discussion of regular season basketball, oh, this team's built for the regular season or not built for the playoffs, it's a coded way of saying a team's actually not that good, but they'll try pretty hard and they have some skilled players that will, um, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're not maximized. They're not optimized. They're not an optimized team, but because the talent levels is there, 
they'll win enough games in regular season. Um, and so when you get to the postseason, you know, the postseason, I think we all agree, is like the better product. Everyone's sort of most optimized, most maximized. The, the, the cream rises. Um, and so in that sense, what's the difference between postseason and regular season basketball? Postseason basketball is like what you should be striving for in terms of like I, – I, I think our wires get crossed here, like not you and I, but me and some people that I talk to on Twitter in the sense of like, I'm always talking about building towards contention and it's not always in the sense of like, you have to build towards contention because, you know, I always get the counter arguments of like some small market teams don't have, you know, don't have championship desires. They have playoff making desires and they have seven seed desires. And that's great. I don't really care. My greater point is that building towards contention is what you should do because the vision of playoff basketball is more representative of what good basketball actually is in a sense of sustainable, optimized play. So if you build, you know, if the regular season and the postseason basketball kind of silos are, are separated, why would you ever really build with the idea that you're limited? Uh, and this is, I'm not doing a great job sort of explaining mm-hmm. all the way, but it is like a slight pet peeve when it's uh, when people argue Oh, you know, well, the the Bulls, right? The Bulls are like the hot button example now. Like the Bulls aren't obviously playing for a title. You have to make you have to make the playoffs first. You got to be a six seed first. Like that's great. I I completely get it. And there's there's competing interests beyond just like winning titles. Um, and of course there are. But my point being is that uh, the you know this like championship level team, whatever kind of the the colloquialisms used to call it are those are what you should ultimately be building towards because they are optimized basketball. (laughs) I think that's the crux of it is we view them as two different things. Um, But I think, you know, like the postseason is a coded way of saying just more optimized play. Uh, And so that's what I think the difference is and why I don't necessarily disagree that it's, you know, it's worthwhile, like, try and make the playoffs if you're a small market team as opposed to winning a championship but you can still do that by taking like the contender building approach because that's just optimization it's a different word for optimization um so i'm not sure if that really adequately answered your question i'm more just fit in a rant there but that is kind of where i see that difference being and why it does frustrate me when people are you know oh well aspirations are different that's fine but your aspirations can be different and also still have the same goal of optimizing talent and play uh and then your aspirations might be you know maybe you'll outshoot your aspirations who knows okay so the number one thing i would say if i were a skeptic of the connectors and scheming advantage the number one thing i would go to a is playoffs and then within the playoffs context that connecting advantages and scheme advantages evaporate to what degree i'm not completely sure but they do evaporate, at least in some sense. Can a team that's built on schematic and connecting advantages or advantage maintenance, like you said, live in that context, in that environment? You know what I mean? Like, what, what's 100%. your response to that? Well, that is what's so hard to judge because there is like a natural tightening that happens on every, it's kind of in everything, every player and coach in the finals just because the stakes are so mm-hmm. high. And there's such a small sample that like you have to win two games. Like if you don't win these two games, you're screwed and the finals are over, you know, like it's, it's kind of crazy. I mean, I understand obviously why it has to be this way, but like, it's crazy that we play 82 games and then you make, you know, then you win 12 and then you're in the finals. Like that's Mm -hmm. nuts. Um, But 
and so because that happens and because that's how the way things are is because and, and consequently you have a tightening that ultimately results in like who has the better advantage creators like who can you know the, we saw this year Giannis there's there was no stopping Giannis the player no matter what there was this the Suns through schematically no matter what the Bucks decided to do offensively ultimately it was a great resource for the Bucks coaching staff and and players that Giannis Antetokounmpo could be given the ball at any moment and you were you had about a 70% chance you're getting a good shot out of that out of that possession um that's the trump card that is like hard to beat and you can't really argue with it um and again of course that should be the pinnacle of team building is like finding those players mm-hmm. um more so than anything because those are the kind of the needle pushers uh but i guess my point would be my my counterpoint um would be that there are not we've we're yet to see a real kind of continuation of thought happening throughout the playoffs, you know, and, and tons of credit to Eric Spolstra um, who got them there with kind of a, and granted, I, you know, whatever it was a bubble. Uh, but like, I think that's stupid, but people will say that um, he got them there with this innovative offense that maximized the five players they played most. Um, really brought along this like borderline lottery pick rookie and made him look like, you know, there were conversations about is he the next Devin Booker after this playoff series? He looks so good. The, there was a, a sort of reliance, understandably so, on playing the hits once you got down there. And like once the, uh, the, Miami, the Miami actions, the, the double drags, the, the, the floppy sets, the, the pin-ins, once those were working, it was just spamming those things and hoping that they would somehow rise to the top again and like work through the adjustments that Vogel had put in. Um, and a lot of the, and to be fair, a lot of the talent, a lot of the finals, just because of the nature of that does come down to talent right now, but we're yet to see like a continuous iteration and it, it just, it, it is hard. Maybe if you're honestly doing a, I'm now convincing myself a little bit against it because it's so hard to input like really drastic changes in the set in like the middle of the seven game series. Mm-hmm. Um, but that would be like my theoretical answer is like continuing that iteration so that, and it's incredibly hard to do. Like it, it admittedly is a job I don't envy, um, mm-hmm. but it would require some level of continuous iteration so that when those pinions are taken away, when those Miami acts are taken away and you know, all the winning we had done via the Tyler hero two on one with BAMs, uh, all those situations, once those had evaporated, well, let's go back to such and such, or let's move, let's try this now. And hopefully that would work. Um, and again, the nature of how finals happen makes it kind of hard and borderline impossible, but that would be the, uh, that'd be the idea for sure. I, I have no problems with your philosophy at all, even if it's not the, the preeminent one in the NBA, because in the NBA currently, like you said, talent other people need to have access to ways of thinking about basketball and trying to build teams that aren't just get the best players because best players stack on the best teams and how many teams in the NBA really have access to those guys so what do you do in lieu of that you try and you've you've used the term optimization or optimize quite a few times in this podcast you take you know an ethos and you see how high you can get it 
sometimes teams and you know eras in the NBA are dominated by a new ethos. It's a keep looking. So that's why I'm I was extremely excited to have you on to kind of hear this ethos and follow it down, you know, follow the breadcrumbs to see where do you think it ends up. And so basically, let's bring it back to the Raptors then. Is there a reasonable expectation you have for a nucleus of Pascal, you know, if he's around for the long term, it remains to be seen. There's still friction there, but Pascal, OG, Scotty, and then plugging in guys. But is there a reasonable expectation you have for their presumed style and that that team? I think short term, it's going to be probably, and of course, a lot of this hinges on like what Nurse decides to do, Um, because as we've hammered home a lot of it's scheme reliant because it's not as much talent focused. You're, you're hoping to maximize talent and that would be done through scheme as it is through team building. And that's, that's in the process of happening, but a lot of it's scheme as well. So short term, if, if the maximization happens, it, it probably looks better than me. And this is like a cop-out answer. It feels like, but it is the truth. It's like, if they are maximized in this way, they're going to look better than anyone thought they would in this first few years. If they're not, then they won't. Um, but that is just kind of how it is. I think uh, more so maybe kind of more worthwhile for listeners of the podcast and Raptors fans is the understanding that they are building an infrastructure that is really set to succeed once that high-level talent is added. Like if you're, you are one, you know, um, high-leverage advantage creator away from like a real championship roster in four years, which is – you know, that's a great position to put yourself in. You don't know what happens in free agency. You don't know what happens in the draft. Um, and that's why you continue to accumulate assets. Uh, but with the fourth pick, you weren't getting that guy. They're the only two in this draft that were really there were off the board. Um, and so the best case you could do is build an infrastructure that is supportive of that guy when they do come and that they have done. Um, so again, not exactly sure how that does come in the end in terms of it requires max space to sign them or, and then it's also funny because I guess an example too, it would be like, what if the Raptors had traded for Kevin Porter Jr. <laughs> then you'd be set. Um, so the, I guess there are maybe ways to do it that aren't the draft that aren't the top five picks in the draft and through uh, max slots and free agency, but those are most often the ways that they come about and, if that does and when that does, they'll be in a great spot to maximize that. There's one thing that could bring Robel back to Twitter. KPJ on the Raptors might rank pretty high on the <laughs> yes. list. I, geez, second rounder. I get there's like a bunch of other stuff going on with him at the time. I hope, I hope he's doing much better now on like a personal level, but he is a goddamn water dancer. I watching, uh, he's, he's incredible. Houston, yeah. man, that's like you have you have your idea of what basketball is and like what could be a really fun way to build the vibes in Houston with Wood <laughs> Green and Kevin Porter Jr. For me, I'm like I'm gonna watch a lot of Houston. I think Toronto, obviously, because it's my job, on you know, to cover the games. But Houston and Chicago for the for the Hoopers vibes. I am absolutely tuning into a lot of uh, a lot of those games this year. But Henry, is there anything else you'd like to impart upon the audience before we get out of here? 
I don't think so. I think the only thing I'd have to add is uh, listening back to you and PD's podcast. I, I have to um, concur with you that the uh, UNC one low is the best Jordan one. That That's my take. Wow. I like it. It maybe maybe we'll just I'll have everybody listen to the previous podcasts and I'll be an egomaniac egomaniac like that. And then I'll have every I'll have a running tally of everybody's favorite sneaker. And I'll yep. at the end of it all I'll make a graph. Not a radar graph because those <laughs> are bad, even though people like them. But uh, uh we'll leave it at that. Henry, thank you so much for coming on. I'm very happy to get you on before you inevitably go on to do bigger and better things in the basketball industry, whatever capacity that is. Thank you for sharing with us. Uh, is there anything you'd like to plug before we get out of here? Um, I don't think so. Thank you, Samson. This was a, this was a blast. I'm glad we, we linked up. Um, you're too kind with the, the compliments. I would just say the only plug for now is following my Twitter at Henry W. Ward. Um, some, some stuff to come, but that's all. I, that's the, uh, it's the only plug for now. I'll, uh, I'll co-sign that Twitter. I enjoy following Henry a bunch, and uh, I get a little bit smarter in whatever aspect he's talking about. And uh, another, I think you should leave Connoisseur. Maybe yes. he'll start putting more ITYSL memes on the timeline. Who knows? But I think that's anybody, the future. Yeah. Yeah, that's the future. It's not like-sized guys of OG and Pascal. It's, <laughs> I think you should leave. But Henry, or maybe, since we're pals now, Hank. Thank you so yes. much for coming on, man. Yeah, thank you, Samson. And listener, thanks for tuning in, whether you got into it in the morning or at night. Have a blessed day and goodbye.